The opinions and viewpoints expressed in .NET Rocks are not necessarily those of its sponsors or of Microsoft Corporation, its partners, or employees. .NET Rocks is a production of Franklin's Net, which is solely responsible for its content. Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter. Rockheads, quit taking a memory dump and listen up. It's time for another stellar episode of .NET Rocks, the internet audio talk show for .NET developers with Carl Franklin and Richard Campbell. This is Lawrence Ryan, announcing show number 497, recorded live from Devrich in Bulgaria, Tuesday, October 13th, 2009. .NET Rocks is brought to you by Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter. And now offering SharePoint 2007 video training with Sahil Malik on DVD, DNR TV style. Order your copy now at www.franklins.net. Support is also provided by Telerik, combining the best in Windows forms and ASP.NET controls with first-class customer service. Online at www.telerik.com. And by Grape City Data Dynamics. Makers of ActiveReports.net, simple, powerful, and cost-effective reporting for Windows Forms and ASP.NET web applications. Online at www.datadynamics.com. Support is also provided by Code Magazine, the leading independent magazine for .NET developers. Online at www.code-magazine.com. And now, the man who, in Bulgaria lit his shashlik on fire and ate it. Carl Franklin. Hey, Bulgaria! Welcome to .NET Rocks! Yeah! Look at that. They're taking off their clothes. Wow. That's an unbelievable crowd. (laughs) They're out of control. They are out of control. Hey, Richard. Howdy, sir. How are you? We're here in Bulgaria once again. We are again. In Our fourth year. Fourth show. I, I missed last year. Right. As you recall. But yeah, it's the fourth Dev Teach, and we've been to all of them. And uh, this show just keeps getting better and better. For those North American speakers who are, are thinking about coming here, uh, don't, because they already have too many speakers. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> there's, a, there's a lot of North American speakers here. Yeah, yeah a whole bunch came out this, uh, this time around, and a, few, and a German. One. Wait, way too many U.S. guys. Ah, uh, okay, yeah. Two Canadians. Yeah. To our right is Christian Weyer. Hi, Christian. Hey, how are you doing? Glad to be here. Glad you're here. And Sean Wildermuth. Hey there. Hey. And uh, Hattie Harari. Hello. Hi, Hattie. So what the heck are we going to talk about for an hour? <laughs> this is the golden question. Yeah. Localization. We sort of threw this panel together at the last minute. Um, Open questions from the audience. Maybe. Absolutely. We will take your questions. So if you throw your hand up, we'll repeat your question back and the panel can answer it. But uh, all of, I don't, Christian, what are you working on right now? <clears throat> Top secret. Oh, thanks for that. That's excellent. Now, um, to be honest, we are doing a lot of um, cloud computing investigation stuff. So what's coming with the 
the Windows Azure platform and the, the whole tooling, and we also have a lot of customers interested in that stuff. Mm -hmm. And we're doing a lot of prototyping and yeah, trying to figure out what's possible, what's not possible, um, how it will um, work or not work, and what it will cost. And Whether it's actually a viable development platform. Yes, yes. And it turns out that still a lot has to happen. So at PDC in four weeks' time, Microsoft really has to come up with some big news. You've been doing some very interesting stuff with it. In fact, you showed a webcam mm -hmm. using, was it using the cloud or was it using WCF? What, tell us about that. Both. Both. <laughs> so I did two demos. One was using my iPhone connected to my PC, and I exposed the, the iPhone to the cloud mm. via a WCF service, and I was accessing my iPhone's playlist and album and photo art wow. through the cloud just by hitting a web browser. So right. was the, were you just looking at the, the file folder that happens in Windows automatically, or <clears throat> no. did you do something on the iPhone itself? Um, there, there happens to be an open source library called SharePotLib, and I used that as an API in order to browse the iPhone, right? Wow. And is, what is that called? SharePotLib. P-O-T-L-I-B? P-O-D-L-I-B. P-O-D, SharePod. Like iPod? iPod, yeah, SharePod lib. Exactly. And I exposed that WCF service endpoint via the service bus. You remember we had yes. a show on the Absolutely. internet service bus of the BizTalk services right. offering. Now it's named and branded .NET services. And one of the services of .NET services is the service bus, where I can expose locally running WCF service endpoints via the cloud on a public internet Address. So would you think of this like a mixing board for inputs and outputs? Exactly. Yeah. yeah. The service bus? Yeah. Yeah. And um, was it a one-to-many webcam viewer or a one-to-one -one or what was it? So in this case, in so one demo was the iPhone. The other one was uh, connecting a webcam to the PC and exposing it via the, the service bus again. So to do um, a screenshot of the video and not the live streaming. Okay. Live streaming also works, but that would mean that I would have some system.io.stream compatible API to get the data from the webcam. Hmm. And I didn't have that one, right? So, but suppose we would have a stream object. I could just stream out that sure. video stream to the cloud, but then it's more or less a one to one streaming. So if 10,000 people try to connect to my service via the service bus, there are 10,000 connections to the service bus, of course, and yeah. they all come back to me, to my local WCF service. Yeah. Well, that's interesting, but I guess the idea wasn't to show, you know, how multimedia can interact with the no. service bus. No, yeah. no. Yeah, so data is data. Sean, what are you working on these days, man? I'm mostly doing this, I don't know if you guys have heard, it's a kind of a hush-hush project, it doesn't get a lot of love, called Silverlight. <laughs> What's that, that again? What is this Silverlight you speak of? It is a, a VB6 for the web. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's like SharePoint being the new access? Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. SharePoint is the new access and Silverlight is the new VB6. <laughs> so what is the coolest thing you've done today in Silverlight? Uh, that's a good question. The coolest thing... Um, that's a really good question because I'm I, I'm mostly focused on line of business, so nothing's so cool, not really cool. cool no, there. No, there isn't. But 
the thing I um, I'm, I'm I'm amazed by because I'm not a I'm not a visual guy as much as I do a lot of Silverlight. We uh, wrote all of our internal apps with Silverlight to kind of prove out the the model. And um, the reason why we're sticking with them is because data binding just works so much better than any other stack yeah. I've ever used. Hmm. Yeah. You know, the my old joke for maybe not anyone who's been in development more than uh, for less than ten years was that data binding was set window text, right? Nice. That's right, that's yeah. that's how you did data binding. And um it makes the ability to write these applications just work. I mean, they still look like gray, gray screen ugly beasts, because I don't care. It's a business app, right? <laughs> <laughs> There's no art to it, but no. painless deployment and uh, a real rich processing on the client side and no more code than you absolutely have to write. Yeah, absolutely. But, and Sean, uh, is it really ready for line of business applications? I think so. I really do. What about security? We well, have investigated into Silverlight's security capabilities, and it's just not there. Well, it matters what you mean by line of business. If you're talking about writing enterprise applications for internal, Silverlight's not the right beast. It just isn't. It's a it's a web technology. Really? When you're talking about creating um, forms for um, um, cross-business applications or for B2C for going to consumers to enter data or to, to manage things that they're doing, absolutely. Because the level of security <clears throat> in Silverlight is the same as is in Ajax. If you're willing to live with the level of security you're getting from Ajax, it's the same with Silverlight. And the limit of yeah. security in the Ajax model and I guess in the Silverlight model is SSL. Correct. Right? I mean, that's it. That's all we've got. That only protects you from the eavesdroppers. We're not getting right. any protection from the users. The spoofers. Right. Well, or the users. And then I say that, not to be kidding, but users wanting to get access to how you're doing things, maybe yeah. to, to fiddle with things or get data that you're sending across the wire they shouldn't see, like social security numbers. You still have to be smart about that. Okay. So my point is actually I hear a lot of Microsoft guys talking customers into the fact that Silverlight is meant for real line of business applications inside of the enterprise. Well, right? And then on one hand they say, hey, build Silverlight-based applications and Silverlight-based UIs. And on the other side they say, hey, the new security model goes claim-based and identity management stuff. And these two worlds just don't fit together right now. That, that's absolutely true. You know, you, you Silverlight's in that space where it's the... Um, it's the hammer that's nailing in every screw that they can see. It's not meant for every every occasion. And as much as at the PDC, I think you're going to hear another push of, yep. oh, my God, it's the next greatest thing. It's just a tool. It's just yeah. a tool. And, you know, I went into a client um, a couple of years ago. They wanted to go to Silverlight for their media. And I said, let's look at your server logs. And they said, why do you want to look at my server logs? I said, I want to know how many people you're not going to be able to serve with Silverlight. Mm. And they were doing mostly video casts for churches. And because of their particular use case, they say you can't use Silverlight, you can't use Flash, because you're on, you have people out there on Windows 95 and IE3, right? Right. There's no way to do this for them. And hmm. do you want to get rid of them? Do you want to? Because those are the people that are trying to see uh, church videos that are doing it because they can't get out of their house. Those yeah. are the last people you want to get rid of. And so it's just like anything else, finding the right tool for the right case. And a lot of times, I recommend to people to do. Um, um, you know, dual implementations as bad as that is. On my Silverlight tour site, if you go there without Silverlight, I don't prompt you to install it. Mm -hmm. Because I know that the people that want to pay me checks to do training, I don't want to have anything get in that way. So I show them an HTML version. They have Silverlight, they get a nice pretty map, and they can float over stuff and do interesting things. Well, but that brings up an interesting question, which is probably on the minds of some listeners. What does Silverlight give me that Ajax doesn't already do? 
simplified programming model and shared skill set. If you're a C-sharp or a VB programmer, the, the move to learning Silverlight is a lot easier. But that's benefit for the programmer. What about for the, for the enterprise or for the end user, for that matter? Well, I don't know about the enterprise. That, that's a much more difficult problem. For the user, it's a better experience, generally. Trying, you than can Ajax. Certainly, than Ajax. Isn't and I, it very close to the same experience? I don't think so. It matters what you're trying to do. And the big cases is, and again, this is where Silverlight can do well in some cases and mm -hmm. not. If you're doing data entry, Ajax is going to do just as well. Mm -hmm. If you're doing data visualization, it's not even close. Silverlight can do so many more and smart and rich things to uh, give smarter visualization. Without doing crazy JavaScript stuff Correct. that nobody knows how to do except the guy who comes home from school at 3 o'clock. Correct. Yeah. Correct. And he's and, the support and, guy. And that's and, and in in my mind that's it. There are places where Silverlight is a really sweet spot, mm. and pretending it's it's great for every application. But a lot of the people I talk to that are moving to Silverlight are moving from very old platforms. They, they aren't web forms guys that are go that are going to Silverlight. Mm. I uh, they're mm. Delphi guys. They're Fox Pro guys. They're VB6 guys. They're VB6 guys that are trying to move into a web model, but they don't have the capacity or the skill sets to go to Ajax and jQuery. Silverlight's a lot more consumable. You know, here's a here's an interesting thing. ActiveX controls on web pages used to be like, you know, unsupported by everybody and uh, you know, not a good idea, but then now you see Flash as an ActiveX control. I mean like And Silverlight. Yeah, and Silverlight. So why not just why aren't we just using ActiveX controls? Because they're not managed? No, I think it's really about who do you trust? Are you going to trust Bob's Pizza Shack to have an Ajax control that does this? Or are you going to trust Adobe um, and having someone write over that? Because the only one that you really need to trust in that case is Adobe. Adobe, Adobe or Microsoft build trust. the sandboxes yeah. exactly. and everything else from there. Hey, Hattie. Yes. You've been very quiet, sir. I have. What are you he working on? He doesn't let me talk. He's yeah. a quiet guy. <laughs> no, I was, just, um, I was just preparing my response to... Um, what do I do? Yeah, yeah, what are you working on? And I'm on? like, you know, compared to Christian, my life is really boring. <laughs> <laughs> and you're very small, actually. <laughs> yeah, I'm very small. So I'm, I'm sort of like the, the opposite of Sean. I'm the jQuery ASP.NET MVC guy. Nice. Uh, I, I'm mostly working with web applications on MVC and jQuery. And I have to disagree with you. I think that Pretty much anything you can do nowadays with Silverlight, and I'm, you know, taking out video streaming and things like that. I think you can do today with jQuery. And why, you know, the, the, a lot of times people say, yeah, but it's JavaScript. It's not. jQuery I mean, really takes the pain out of it JavaScript. Takes out, it takes the pain. I mean, it allows developers that hated JavaScript to actually start to like it. Interesting. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But if you're dealing with developers, and to me, it, it, the reason Silverlight is taken off is, is, is about skill set. And you, even coming into jQuery, which is a much better experience than JavaScript, the first time you try to explain to them to get into CSS selectors as the main portal into most of the work they're going to do, that's very difficult, for, especially the guys who have never done any web okay. programming. The guys that have, have been hacking together web forms, absolutely, and that's why I think you don't see the, that level of adoption with people that are used to the web. But here's the thing. Back when ASP.NET web forms came out, what was the primary intent? To leverage the knowledge of existing Visual Basic developers and desktop application developers, right? And then seven years later, we realized, hey, it's not the way to it's not really a good make idea, actually. web applications. Because, yeah. you, know, you know, you don't have one machine per user, for example. You have one server per thousand users. 
So it's not only about the abstraction that it gives you, it's about focusing how you do, you actually write a web application. Whereas you have one server, you know, answering to multiple people. I think that, you know, C-sharp is great. And I was really excited when Silverlight was, it was WPF embedded or something like that before, right? And I was really excited. I'm like, oh, great, no more, no more JavaScript. I can just do everything now in C-sharp. That right. would be awesome. Mm. But I, I, didn't, I didn't get on the bandwagon. Well, I have no doubt that Silverlight can build nice apps and, and that, that jQuery can build nice apps too. The difference I see is one needs an embedded control and one doesn't. The, the interesting thing about jQuery is it's just a subset of JavaScript. It's a set of libraries that make things simpler. Yeah. So the range of support is broader. Yeah. And the challenge there is, is the challenge is actually, it's still JavaScript. It isn't that easy. You know, there is some challenges in writing that code. But it is. I mean, I, for, I, for example, you know, I didn't know CSS. Okay. I hated CSS. I was, I was scared of CSS. You, you should know? still hate CSS. <laughs> but the thing is, I, I learned jQuery and I, I learned it the other way around. You know, jQuery is based, it ba it's based on CSS selectors. Right. So you select classes or divs, etc. And now I love CSS because of jQuery. So I, well, I think it's, it's quite. It sounds like the, the, um, the, we're back to just having multiple technologies based on what your skill set is. You know, but if the skill set of your team comes from a JavaScript uh, background, or, or you know, you're going to be choosing this jQuery, if you're you're typically a Visual Studio wonk, and you you're a draggy droppy kind of programmer. Well, let me be clear. I don't think it's a competition, right? Or exhibition between the two. I'm of the opinion that everybody that does web development um, should really evaluate them all, figure out what is the right right one for their. Uh, situation. The problem is that we seem to get into these ruts of thinking that it's always a technology yeah, decision. Now, don't right. get me wrong. I think that all developers, even outside of Microsoft, should spend three days at a high-intensive training situation to learn Silverlight. Right. Yeah, because that's very important to me. But other than that... Because <laughs> he teaches <laughs> The guy who classes, does the three-day yeah. Silverlight <laughs> class, yeah. They but, just come right out there but, with that. So I do think we, to, to take it a little broader, you know, it isn't about whether Silverlight is the right technology jQuery is the right technology. In, invariably, all those decisions are much larger than that. They're yeah. not only skill set in an organization, what the culture is like, um, how you handle super developers, um, senior developers, and junior developers. It, it, it's and even business um, um, relationships affect it all. And yes. so, thinking that oh, this is better because of this technology this is almost never why something's picked. No, I mean, I agree that it's always about choosing the right tool for the right job. I'm not discarding or dismissing uh, Silverlight. You want to fight about it? Well, let's take it outside. <laughs> I think Christian, Sean will That win. would be very interesting. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so I have a dream. I have a dream that there one day there will be just one major mainstream tool set for building applications, especially... We are always focused on business applications. How very German of you. Yeah. <laughs> oh, damn. <laughs> okay, so I still have a dream. <laughs> and, and I thought when I first saw Silverlight 2 and then later Silverlight 3 with the out-of-the-browser stuff, and I thought I can have the best of both worlds, of the web world and the Windows world. But still, I have to... I have to reinforce that we really need a thorough security story in Silverlight in order to both have it as a web technology as well as an enterprise 
technology because I don't want to build a WPF or Windows Forms app for the enterprise and then a Silverlight one for the web, right? I just want to have one set of technologies. Why? Because you know they're different. Just saying. (laughs) Well, diversity is good, right? Yes, but all this discussion here about CSS selectors and all that crap, that's way too technical. But the, so the customers, a, wait, you're so a developer. developer. <laughs> you're a developer. Yes, yeah, sure. But who is paying you? It's not the guy that understands what a CSS selector does better or worse than a style sheet in Semble. I don't know. Right? It's about solving the business problem. And for solving a business problem, it's way easier to sell it to the customer if you have one mainstream platform where you can have locally running applications as well as have the same application running in the browser to be easier deployable. Isn't that so we should have BMW and Mercedes merge and make one car for everybody? I mean, I don't, I don't buy that. I, I think, you know, invariably like construction, they're constructing a house requires often wood and nails and constructing a, a high rise building is concrete and steel. I don't think one platform for everything will ever work. I don't, I don't think it should. No, I don't say that. I, I want to have one base platform, right? Like Silverlight. I think Silverlight is a really good base platform for, for building both locally running out of the browser as well as browser applications. But there's still a lot of missing in order to make it really work inside of enterprise scenarios. And do we mention that this was a dream? <laughs> yeah. Still. Yeah. But the claims based security model is fine dream. in the, in the jQuery Ajax world, right? I'm just calling back to a service and I can secure that with whatever architecture I want. But you can't secure it, right? I mean, this whole thing of um, when you're you're talking like WCF end to end, where they're doing the WS security stuff, right. you're talking about being needing to secure secrets. Ajax and Silverlight can't secure those secrets. Right. So that's why I mean one of the big big things I get early is why can't I use my WCF standard WCF and Silverlight? And I say because it's not safe. It's not about them saying you can't do it. You can't. I can't encrypt or do a one way encryption in Silverlight and not open up the assembly and figure out how you did it with your magic key. Right, I can do some tricks, setting a key and expiring, and do a lot of things to make it better. But I can't secure it. It's on the web. You want a secure computer? Unplug the Ethernet cable. Turn off the wireless. How much of a line of business application is behind the UI anyway? I mean, if you're talking about, I think Christian is saying that what we want to do is reuse as much code in one place as we can for both. And you know, that's where WCF comes in. That's where the service bus and all of that good stuff that you're talking about. I think that's what you're trying to get at. Exactly. Yeah. Or, or we could just stop thinking that they're different things, web and desktop, right? If you, if you talk to the average consumer out there, I, I saw this frightening video where they asked people out on the street in New York, what is your operating system? And the answer was either Google or Firefox. <laughs> <laughs> People don't know, and more so, relevantly, don't care. It's just so not that, important. And, That's and why the should truth. It care? Why should it matter? If I'm in an enterprise, assuming I can secure it um, from the user back into the end store, why does it matter that it's in a browser or or out of a browser? The out of the browser in Serverlight is a browser app. Okay, I'll tell you a story. I'm working for a university as a consultant, and they decide they hate Internet Explorer. They want to use, and this is how old is this? They want to use Netscape. Okay, they're they're declaring Netscape, and we're but they want a zero deployment app. They don't like that we have to keep redeploying apps to all the desktops. So I VB6 build a form, embed the IE control in the form, 
changed the icon, which is what they actually didn't like. They didn't like the Internet Explorer icon. Distribute the client once. And then just keep running ASP pages and through this page. And they're blown away That's because awesome. here's this app. We never need to redistribute the client again, but it wasn't in the browser. It's awesome. <laughs> People don't know. They don't have a clue. I agree. Uh, but in, in, no matter what, if we're using browser-based technologies, whether it's J, jQuery, Ajax, or Silver or anything, we have this essential security problem that we're limited to SSL as a reliable method of viewing any kind of protection of any kind back to the to the web server. And I know I said this before, but I want to say it again because I think it's important. All the SSL stops is the guy in the middle. The snooper. Right. It doesn't protect it from either side. Right. Yeah. Um, and that's, There's no authentication, no authorization with SSL. It's on top of SSL. Well, more importantly, if you look at web technology, Silverlight, Flash, as well as you know uh, HTML, JavaScript, jQuery, is we have the problem of how do you how do you have secrets on the desktop securely? You can't. Right. Hmm. You yeah, can't. Yeah. Right. Because you have to download and execute them locally. Yeah. That's why postback, as bad as it was, I'm not advocating it, meant that you could keep a lot of the stuff and just throw the you were just throwing um um markup back to the user. We get the back more to we this. write code in the browser, the more we have to worry about security because we have more stuff there. Right. So we get back to the browser technologies as the presentation layer. Mm -hmm. So all the intelligence and all the security and so forth is living back on the server. And even though it's Silverlight and could do all these things, mm -hmm. it's just for presentation. Service-oriented service -oriented systems. Right. Yes. And they are just another UI in front of our services. Well, and in, by the same token, the ability to have a diverse set of clients means to put as little as possible on those clients as you can. Right. So you write the least amount of code over and over and over again as you move between a different client. Only enough to make it work. So have we seen any interfaces that we like? Like, what about RIA services? Would you try and build that against anything other than Silverlight? Tell me you love RIA services, Sean. I, I really dislike the RIA. Well, <laughs> I, I'm being too harsh. I'm sure I'll get an email from Brad Abrams about this. There's going to be some, yeah. Um, I don't like how it's implemented. My problem is, and this is the typical Microsoft problem, if anyone doesn't understand Microsoft, let me tell you the secret. Microsoft isn't a company. It's 80 companies under one umbrella. And so you have all these fiefdoms. And so my problem with with this is the same problem we saw with Link to SQL and Entity Framework. Two groups working on essentially similar problems and then trying to integrate at the last second and pretend they're the same. And so RIA service, the problem with RIA services today is there's, I think there's too much magic code generation. Right. If you're doing builds outside of Visual Studio, it can become problematic. And they're, they're, they're now, you know, they're probably going to release at PDC. So in this four weeks, they're trying to quickly implement um, integration with WCF and Astoria, which means they won't do either of them. And well, right. And it's really the three we're talking about here that are, are transports for our web clients is Astoria, WCF, and RIA services. Well, four, REST. And then REST. Yeah. But then I think REST is more generic and, you know, you can, sure. You can make a lot of stuff into REST like. Yeah. Things. You can write REST with MVC or REST yeah. with WCF. Right. Yeah. So or, REST or, is not a, Technology like WCF or Astoria, REST sure. is an architectural model, right? And sure. you can implement it with different technologies. Mm -hmm. yeah. Well, and REST seems to be our friend in this scenario, although again, very browser centric. It seems to be the one, the, the reason de jure, the favorite right now approach to communicating back to the server. Everybody should get plenty of REST. Nice. That's what I think. Then I'm 
And the, and the, and your three faces seem to totally disagree with that. You don't no love affair with Rust. I, I, Patty I, I, loves I, it, I, but then he's a jQuery guy. He's already brain damaged. Yeah. No, I am. <laughs> Come on, let the guy speak. Hattie, <laughs> let me have it. Have what? No, uh, I, about I like rest. It. No, I like rest. Yeah, I like it. I, I think it simplifies everything. Yeah. Yeah. I, no. I hate. No. Okay. Now let's go outside. <laughs> Come on. Just hear me. And don't don't you... stand up. Just sit down. Yeah. Why do you like it? Why does? How does it simplify everything? Because it explode. It exposes a simple client. For, for anyone to consume, whether it's my own web app. I mean, I can write REST applications in MVC. I don't even have to have views. Right. I can just write them in MVC, not without views. I can consume them from anything. I don't have to worry about subheaders. I don't have to worry about <laughs> anything or interoperability or okay. anything like that. So I, mean, I like both worlds, of course. Yes, I'm so German. Mm. Um, <laughs> I said so nothing. I like the, the service slash operation oriented model as well as I like the resource oriented model. It, it really just depends on which use case yeah, right. always. you have, always. right? Always. And I always try to call the REST support in WCF not REST support, but the web programming model in WCF because it's not really restish or restful what you can do in WCF. If you really want to go the full restful route, then maybe go for ASP.NET MVC or some open source libraries based on ASP.NET or uh, System.NET HTTP listener or... Yeah. This portion of .NET Rocks is brought to you by our friends at Telerik, who bring you the Telerik extensions for ASP.NET MVC. The extensions bring rich UIs to your MVC application. These are just announced, and this time they're not standard web forms controls tailored for MVC, but native, built-from-the-ground-up MVC components. There's three important things to remember. One, they're pure ASP.NET MVC components. Two, they're based on jQuery. And third, and this is the best part, they're completely open source. Just go to www.telerik.com slash MVC for more information and online demos. Make sure you thank them for supporting .NET Rocks. What is so non-restful about WCF? Well, um... The REST slash web programming model support was put on top of the service slash operation oriented model of um, WCF in .NET 3.5, right? Right. So it's kind of, oh yes, uh, it's that REST hype there out there, so let's support it in our communication foundation. So we need to have the SOAP style as well as the REST style. Right. So it's sort of retrofit into... Yeah. But it's also all, service-based. All it's still, you're yes. looking at a service contract. Yeah. And that service contract happens to return um, something that doesn't look like a soap envelope. Right. I mean, that's really all it does. REST formatted data. Yes. Yeah. So, Called XML or JSON format. Right. All right. the web programming model in WCF does essentially is not dispatching the messages based on the soap action, but rather on the URI template. Right. And that's all it does. Yeah. Because you can't really build a common implementation of those two things. They're supposed to be different. It is possible to a certain extent, but if you really want to use all restfulness, you have to deal with content types, right? Right. And then, of course, you have to have different implementations. Yeah. Okay, we have a question from the audience. Okay, my name is Delan, and I have a question about running Silverlight under alternating uh, operating systems such as Linux, uh, Mac, so on. Uh, 
last MS days, I tried to register on the website from Linux box, and nothing <laughs> happened because I couldn't load it. So, what do we do? Well, there's some there's some interesting stories around that. Um, for those of you who don't know, there's an open source project funded out of uh, Novell called um, um, Moonlight. Moonlight. Thank you. Um, and the idea about Moonlight was that they would release within six months a compatible version of whatever Silverlight released. Um, they're not yet to the 2.0 version, so the six months deadline um, didn't quite make it because they've got some other priorities like Monotouch and um, Miguel's working really hard on a lot of stuff. So I can understand why why they why they haven't made the deadlines. And that's really what has hurt the Linux platform for getting that. On the side note, and I'm not sure if this is because of the drop-in deadlines or what, but uh, Microsoft also recently um, mentioned that they were going to port Silverlight to Linux for the small Intel boxes that Intel is building. And I don't know whether that means they're going to um, not rely on Moonlight or not. I'm trying to read between the lines, but I'm hoping that it's going to get better in Linux. On Silverlight on, on Mac just works, but it's written specifically for Mac. It's not written for a Unix um, style OS so that it will work in Linux. There's lots of very specific hooks in there. Um, they depend on um, OpenGL for a bunch of things for the graphics stuff. They depend on it being on a Mac OS um, under Safari or under um, um, Firefox. And so uh, um, I'm hoping it'll get better, but it's a the Linux story is just muddled. We had all hoped that Moonlight would succeed, but as as Mono did, it, it just um, it could never keep up with the number of engineers that Microsoft is using to build this stuff. So are you saying that the iPhone is more important than Linux? Because they focus on MonoTouch and not on Moonlight? Well, that's a good question. Certainly, if they're going to follow the hype, absolutely. Absolutely. So the next, uh, you should have just registered with your iPhone, I think. That's the answer. <laughs> you would have been fine. Uh, yeah, we have another question in the back. So um, when I started uh, to work with computers, uh, it was about uh, 25 years ago. And um, uh, all those, those years, I saw how the technology were born, how they reached their climax, and how they goes down. And um, um, actually, I, I, I'm a witness of uh, generations of technology, starting with the, the first uh, computer, personal computer, 8-bits, if you remember them, mm -hmm. and how this uh, was going uh, up. So my question is very straight. It is uh, very, very open. Uh, when, on your opinion, uh, today's uh, high technology will die? I mean, when uh, silver white will die, when uh, uh, J um, uh, Curie will die, when ASP.NET will die, and of course you'll be changed with something else. July twenty third, two thousand twelve. <laughs> <laughs> we all know that's the end of the world. Yeah. Four p.m. Yeah. Thank you. Central European time. You couldn't have expected a real answer from that question. There, right? there is an angle on this I think is interesting, which is that .NET is finally reaching version four, and we got to start thinking about: is there something past .NET? What comes next? Do do we actually make a jump like we did? 
from the, the VB runtime and the MFC runtime over to the managed memory runtime to a whole other model, whether it's a runtime model or not. I'm shocked. Some of the conversations I'm having with folks that like for iPhone developers, like that's old school development. There's not a lot of difference between what they're doing and what we were doing in like 1987. And, and still doing well, like still building interesting applications. And here's all this sophisticated tooling and the advanced framework and so forth. And you got to wonder, are we getting value from this? And is there a jump to be made going forward in the next couple of years? Yeah. When will developers start complaining about the goo in .NET? I mean, cause that's essentially what, where development languages have gotten more and more and more simple. But it's already started. I mean, if you look at the, the dynamic guys out there, the guys who are right. doing Python Ruby and Ruby, and Python, and, yeah. um, th that's their chief complaint, um, is that, uh, you know, right now, I think we're in this, this language explosion, you know, closure over in the Java space, mm -hmm. where people are trying to find better and newer ways to do things. And I think that's really reflected in the people coming out of college today as well. The guys coming out of college, unlike 10, 15 years ago, they don't know Java. They know PHP, they know Python. And they know Ruby. And Ruby. Yeah. And um, I think those are lessons that, that at least the .NET space is really trying to learn from. Well, and I feel like the .NET space is trying to grab onto it that we have it in, we have F# -sharp and we have Iron Ruby and we have Iron Python. Like we're finding ways to sort of cram these very different style of language into the CLR model. And I don't know that we're actually doing that language any service in the process. I think there's smart guys working on it, and some people are very enthused. But it's it's just like ASP.NET in some ways, right? That The web forms model was really trying to cram the VB development style into web. Are we doing the same thing to Python and Ruby? I don't want to be the only one to say anything about it, but certainly somewhat. Uh, it's interesting because I think, I think as things become easier, certainly writing a line of code in .NET is cheaper than writing a line of com code 10 years ago. Without a doubt. And uh, uh, I happen to be sitting beside Kent Allstad today. We all know Kent. When I was working on my demo for a session uh, using caching in ASP.NET, and I had one line of code to set up my cache key, and right beside me in objective say he had 15 lines of code that was doing exactly the same thing. Right. Mm -hmm. Well, you, you know, one thing that I can see... Uh, being greatly simplified in the future. I don't know if we're here yet, but that's multi-threaded programming. Uh, we were just talking with uh, some people about um, software transactional memory. And man, let me tell you, that uh, that goes a long way towards getting rid of locks. The multi-threaded is a hard problem. And there's so many people looking at it from different ends. Yeah. I, I don't know whether... Um, STM. STM is the solution or what Axiom is doing or the functional guys, whether what they're doing is right. Mm -hmm. I don't think we're going to have an answer to that. I, everyone knows that deadlocks and locks themselves are somewhat evil, but I don't think we still have a good solution for what is the best way to handle this. And, and frankly, whether we should be, right? Uh, most of our laptops have come with two or four cores now, or at least four virtual cores. And is it better to have Word running four threads on four different cores or having... Um, Word run on one um, core and having the three other processes going on having their own core. Well, they all have other apps to run. And I would point yeah. out my version of Outlook runs 68 threads. So four cores isn't even enough to actually keep all of Outlook happening. But that's a com problem. <laughs> no, that's an Outlook problem. That's what that's that is. Mappy. It's STA. We gotta get gotta get Richard in the cloud one of these days yeah. for email. It seems like such a simple. Why is uh, that? 
Email should just not be nailed down to one computer. That's I, as simple as I'm, that. I'm totally with you, but I'm more of the point of, I've looked at it, Entourage and all these other... Why is email so flipping hard? It sucks everywhere. Well, my guess is that you're running Exchange. Oh, yeah. You know, End of story. I would tend that Outlook is a problem only if you're running Exchange. I would tend that Outlook is the least painful when you're running Exchange. Because if you run Outlook with Map with Mappy or with IMAP, now you're really in pain. Oops, my hard drive crashed. Oh, well, there goes my email history. But not with Pop. Yeah, except that Pop means all my mail's on my so machine. can we come back to the multithreading question? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, and the reason I brought that up is because there's... You know, that's a very historically complex problem to solve. And even the best hardcore C programmers will tell you that they still don't get it. You know, you, nobody really can look at their code and say, ah, I understand that. I mean, it's very, very difficult stuff. So I see, you know, Axiom and software transactional memory as looking forward to the future when we have not four cores or eight cores, because that's... That's just eight cores is just where STM starts to work, you know, and scale. But forty cores, fifty cores, sixty cores, then your your whole idea, your concept of multi-threaded programming has got to change. And software transactional memory works by um, encapsulating a block of code in in a transaction, essentially just like a database transaction, and it runs. And essentially, you know, when the problem with multi-threaded code is race conditions, the big one where a piece of memory is changed or modified by two threads at the same time. So in between one line of code on one thread, a variable that you just set could have changed. And so what STM does is it checks to see if something has changed from another thread. And if it hasn't, it commits the transaction. If it has, it runs it again. Because race conditions will happen, you know, one out of every... 500,000 times or something like that. But the more threads you have running, the closer it gets. So essentially, you do have overhead until you get to about eight cores. But once you're after that level, you know, if you're going really high performance and in lots of cores, there's no, there's no better technology I see. So I have a question. When I think about multithreading and talk about multithreading and program multithreaded, mm. I have essentially two problem spaces. The CPU bound operations yeah. and the I.O. bound Absolutely. operations. And the no, I.O. bound is are... fix that. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. If you're writing to a file, don't do that over multiple threads. Well, it's file, no... service, yeah. cloud, right. a database, I don't know. It doesn't, it's all doesn't I.O. bound, right? And 90% of all applications on the planet are more I.O. bound than CPU bound. Mm. To be honest, when and that's why we have SSDs now, right? Yeah, well, the, really fast. It's just we, we made, yeah, it was simpler to make the processor go faster than it was to make the app more efficient, right? Right. So we just kept making the processor go faster, faster, till it's just waiting around for the rest of the infrastructure right. inside of a machine. But there are alter, you know, when you start playing in supercomputing, there's some pretty crazy I/O solutions out there too. So when we actually start burying the processor again, and and I/O becomes the issue, there are ways to go. So, like what? I'm really interested to hear because you you have your head in this space. Well, yeah, my my personal favorite networking technology for really excessive performance is stuff called Infineon, which was literally built to to connect the buses of CPUs across multiple machines together. So suddenly Whoa. you have this massively fast pipe, like it's just epically fast, but it's short range. It's really meant for for supercomputing, right? Right. So, but and my my point being that. 
as we, as the core of technology advances, these edge cases, maybe there's been 64 core machines around for a long time. Mm-hmm. Most of us just don't, can't justify the utilization of them. Right. Same thing. There's huge IO solutions already out there. They will be brought into the mainstream as that becomes the problem. Do you feel that these abstractions that they're introducing, I mean, with all the parallel things, uh, that's coming out, do you think that's going to cause more problems than, than it solves? That people start right to now, do things causing... without Let actually me put it knowing that way. the same way the web It did. will give us a lot of consultant work, yeah. right? Okay. We've got jobs. There's no two ways about that. Yeah. They're quite, um, let me spin your question a different way, Hattie. Something, perhaps something rare, a little ruder, which is, is putting STM into .NET really putting lipstick on a pig? Right? Like we're, <laughs> we're trying to take a framework that we currently know and understand. So it has value in the sense that we can jump into it and making it do something completely different. Yeah. I want it to behave effectively multi-core. Now, hey, if it's a nice pig, why not? Right? I don't see that as an, as an issue. The, the, the no. point being that the alternative is we may need a radical leap, a replacement for .NET right. to really do parallel right. And the problem comes, right? When there's so much stuff that becomes obsolete and unnecessary that's in the framework today that it, you know, at some point they'll have to, you know, either deprecate things or, in, you know, modify things and introduce new things. And that gives you the whole problem of backward compatibility. So it really would have to be a, a sea change, you know, start over. All your .NET code runs over here. Like now we'll have interop to .NET, you know, something... But I would point out that Silverlight did something magical, which was made a lighter weight version of the the framework. Mm. Bring only what we really need to the remote client, which just hints at the idea that that would even be possible. Plus, throw in the fact that with .NET 4, we're now talking about running multiple versions of assemblies. Like It seems like we're lining up the pieces to say, hey, if you're just going to be running multi-core here, there's all this stuff in the framework you just don't need. So we're actually going to parcel the framework into little pieces Mm. and just load the bits you need. Mm. I... I think there's also, you know, to to have his point, I think it can be a problem. I think that uh, there's this, uh, I call it the I want to be an architect problem, where often um, people are trying to create solutions to problems they don't have yet. So the the architect problem of not having uh, a good solution or not having a problem yet, of ha- anticipating. Mm. So I go in and, and talk to a client and, well, why are you... Why have you just written your own um, thread pool right. that will handle more threads than the normal one do? Don't you think that they did it for a reason? I often tell students that the moment you write var x equals new thread, you've done it wrong. Mm-hmm. There's no reason today to create a thread. Mm. There's so many other solutions for other ways to do this, unless you're writing some really deep plumbing code mm. to ever actually create a new thread. Well, remember the beginning of the .NET framework where everybody talked about writing their own memory manager. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Like it's just it's a form of insanity. It's, it's like, no, no, I think I can do this better. And we don't trust yeah. that the framework's actually doing it right. And I think we're headed with the multi-core solutions and Axum and things like that actually providing a means so that we don't need to know about multi-threading. We write a declarative form that actually allows the application itself or more importantly its runtime to say this can be run multiple multi-threads, this cannot. I had a friend who said, hey, I wrote a new uh, uh, encryption algorithm. Let's use it. (laughs) No, my... Yeah, let me think. I think no. no. And it hasn't (laughs) been reviewed by anyone. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. ROT13 is not an encryption algorithm. (laughs) (laughs) Question right in front. I hear a lot of hype about Astoria lately. Uh, Is it me or uh, 
is it the technology? I just don't understand what kind of uh, real life benefits we will have from from Astoria. That's a great question, actually, because I'm a kind of a fan of Astoria. My fascination with it was this idea that I could build a layer that'll run against my database or SQL Azure, but. You guys are the guests. What do you it's, like about Astoria? It's Asher, by the way. Yeah, whatever, German. Azuro, Azur. Asher it is. Whatever. Azure. Well, uh, Astoria, or otherwise known as the um, Microsoft uh, um, bad naming algorithm, ADO.NET Data Services, which, right. which is just painful to say. Mm. Um, I think there's a lot coming up. Um, the, the recent announcements of being able to do things. Well, let me back up for people who don't uh, know what Astoria is. Essentially, Astoria is a way to expose a model over the web through REST. It's a, it really is, um, um, uh, now I can't think of the, the word, but it's, it's awesome. I guess I'll say instead. That's a good word. Um, nice. But essentially allows you to, if you're running from Silverlight or from another manage to, to, to take simplified link queries and uh, execute them across the wire. And the new stuff they're talking about, which I'm really excited about, is uh, being able to do actual projections and track projections. So I can project into a, to a smaller version of a customer, bring over the wire, show it to a user, and being able to send that small version of the customer back over, and they'll do the update without having to do all that stuff manually. That's really exciting to me. Um, to me, it's solving the problem. Actually, we were talking earlier about it of uh, what I call method pollution that happens in web services. I create web service that's going to expose a customer. I have four methods. And then about a year into the project, I have 400 methods because every developer had their own need for some, for, um, for some read operation. Some little but, variation on it. But, and we also had that discussion, um, maybe we need to step back a little bit and first talk about the architectural patterns, right, in services and service-oriented applications. So... You say ADO.NET data services is a bad name, but just because of ADO.NET. It is a good name because of data services, because right. it tries to solve Absolutely. the problem of data services, not of business services, right. and not of application services. It's data services, right? Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. And, uh, and if you have CRUD, create, read, update, delete, Astoria is just perfect absolutely. for you. But from a web service called service-oriented architecture, you wouldn't really have CRUD, right? You wouldn't have CRUD. That's you what I'm have saying. Yeah, methods that encapsulate That's everything. That's what I'm saying. That's being yeah. Done. yeah, yeah, sure. Yeah. And that for us, I totally agree. But if you've spent a lot of time with customers. You'll see that that's not how they're using SOA. But that's where, as a consultant, you re-educate and you get paid. It's <laughs> <laughs> like, there. good luck with that. Yeah, yeah. There's lots of money there. Yeah. Uh, I'm I'm a fan of Astoria simply because I think it's of all of these new data tra data services type resources, right? RIA services being one and so forth. It seems to make the most sense to me. I, I, and it, more importantly, I feel the least boxed in with it. No matter which way I go, right. I don't think a story is going to hurt me. It's also the one that I feel is most open. When you look at the way that RIA services is built, and it's really built to allow um, the Microsoft technologies behind it, and it's certainly the same um, um, for uh, some of the other Microsoft technologies. I was able to retrofit and hibernate behind Astoria in about two days. Nice. Um, and that's part of the, the Inhibernate Link stuff now, so it's not just my little project. So the idea that it's exposing a link provider, not Microsoft's link provider, but a link provider is a really powerful construct in my mind. In fact, when I talk, when people ask me about it, people say, is our data services a, a another data access? And I'm like, no, all it does is translate a URI syntax into a link query. It has no responsibility. Well, how does it do 
um, uh, uh, handle concurrency. It mm. doesn't. All it does is translate a URI to a link query. Mm. So, or to an inserted update and delete. Yeah. So, um, if all you need is, or basically what you need is a restified data pump, then go for Astoria, right? You can have an entity framework data model behind that. You can have an, I don't know, Telerik open access data model behind that. Or you can try to hook up all those necessary interfaces to your very custom uh, data model like iUpdatable, which is really tough to implement. But if you are just talking about the data services pattern, just go for Astoria. It's perfect. And it's really built for the web. So, you know, you can imagine you're not necessarily going to expose business objects with data in JSON objects over to jQuery. It doesn't make any sense. And it's also not tied to Silverlight. It, it works really well with with uh, remote clients as well as web web apps. Hey, uh, before we wrap up here, I want to ask each of you, uh, this is a question we used to ask our guests very, uh, I don't know, a couple of years ago. Our favorite curse word? Yeah. How'd you guess? <laughs> um, no, something, something really, the coolest thing you've seen uh, on the web or in a store, a gadget, a technology, a piece of software, uh, something that uh, has really made a difference uh, for you somehow and that not everybody would know about necessarily. Oh, that they wouldn't know about? Well, maybe they do, maybe they yeah. don't. So there goes the iPhone. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, I'll pass the question on to you, what I nice. think about it. Sure. Um, it's an interesting question. Uh, I think touch in general. You know, I was a, wasn't a big fan of it to begin with, and I'm, I'm really hoping that on October 23rd when Windows 7 comes out and they start to announce hardware mm. that most of the laptops will not be touched. I, I'm an old old guy that used to do uh, Windows 95 pen extensions development. Mm -hmm. And so the idea of having an app I could touch again. Pen computers are... I never liked them. I never liked tablets because I can't touch it, right? Right. You have to have those magic mm. active pens. And so um, I recently picked up a Zune HD um, which... It, Proves to me that Microsoft can make a good hardware device. It's the first hardware device I've ever had from them that I went, wow, I hate my phone now even more. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah, I wish they made the Zune HD about six years ago. Agreed. The, the whole mar the market would be completely different, but it's a shame. Christian? So it's my turn? Yeah. Eternalmoonwalk.com. Oh. Whoa. What is eternalmoonwalk.com? Sounds like a cult. Friend? Sounds like... Michael it, Jackson's... A tribute, a tribute to, Michael, to Jackson. Michael Jackson. It's a compilation of YouTube uh, videos, uh, and it's an endless loop of people trying to do the moonwalk. It's <laughs> hilarious. <laughs> it's hilarious. You can go for hours. Eternalmoonwalk.com. Thank you. That's, That's awesome. Brilliant. Howdy, last chance. I know one. Clipper Z. That's a... Clipper Z? Clipper Z. Clipper Z. Clipper Z. It's a online... Password manager. Oh. That allows, because I'm, I normally use a key, key pass. Right. And my life for the past 10 years has been a laptop. The other day I bought a netbook and I was screwed, right? Yeah. Now I'm like, okay, no where passwords. do I store this? Yeah. So exactly. you don't use the Google sticky note thing like I do? So how For no. the passwords? Yep. No. <laughs> how can you trust these guys? Uh, well, yeah, well how I, I have I a password Google? save on my local machine, right? Which password minder. Yeah. Which is great. Yeah. And I can distribute the, XML file via Dropbox or Dropbox. Live Mesh or whatever. But I, storing everything 
in the cloud? I actually sure. implanted a memory chip in my temple, and <laughs> I, I have a little device that I hold it up there, and I just, just wave it around, and I guess. See, now that you should paint them, yeah. because it might work. Yeah. Well, since you mentioned Dennis Moonwalk, I do have to make everyone go out there and look at asleeponthesubway.com. It's just p- people submit pictures of other people asleep Sleeping on the, on the subway. subway. It's awesome. That's what the internet's really all about, right? Oh my Favorite YouTube video? Oh, I have to say, I watch this over and over again. I don't know if you guys know The X Factor. Yeah. You've heard of The X Factor? There's a guy on it called Jamie Archer that does Afro. He does um, a version of Sex, uh, Your Sex is on Fire by King of Leon. I love that. I've been watching that like every day. <laughs> I, I don't have a thing for the guy. I just love the, his, his way that he Sorry, you don't have it. to explain yourself. No, it's okay. serious. No, I, I want to make Europe, it clear. You know, I have a wife mind. and two kids. Everybody's Whatever turns you crank, man. It's okay. It's fine. <laughs> No, Nothing's there's anything wrong, wrong with that. With that. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Kung Fu Baby still makes me laugh after three and a half years. Kung Fu Baby. Okay. <laughs> I have one, but it's it's in German and it's uh, it's called Müllabfuhr. Uh, it's from a German kids TV series from 1973, I guess, and it's just hilarious if you look at it. But nothing for you, international guys. I'm sorry. Yeah. yeah. Mine is my fa- my current favorite is uh, if you search for. Guy breaks Edison cylinder. So this guy's on Tech TV. He's and he's holding a wax cylinder made by Thomas Edison. He's saying, "Now this is a very rare, one of a kind piece. There isn't anyone like it in the world." And his hands are shaking. They do a close up. He's notice how the grooves go up and down like this. This is a priceless model. Oh shit! <laughs> and then he looks at the guy like, uh-huh. the guy says, "Oh well, that doesn't happen every day." Uh, you done with that? Then we move on. Okay. Hilarious. That's nice. And it really happened. It really did. Well, guys, this has been a fascinating hour. It just flew by. I we always like doing these shows. Sure. Because uh, never, you know, never get to sit down and talk like this and get questions. So thank you. Great audience. Thank you, Bulgaria. Thank you. Thank you, you guys. We'll see you next time on .NET Rocks. .NET Rocks is recorded and produced by Pwop Productions, providing professional audio, audio mastering, video, post-production, and podcasting services online at www.pwop.com. .NET Rocks is a production of Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter and offering custom on-site classes in Microsoft development technology with expert developers. Online at www.franklins.net. For more .NET Rocks episodes and to subscribe to the podcast feeds, go to our website at www.dotnetrocks.com. Got a transmitter band by the FCC.